Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Heritage battles flare in Oxford Street, in Tulls Hill, and in South Kensington. Camden replaces Silicon Roundabout as the startup capital of London. Outrage as HS2 part scrapped and Transport for London warns of funding shortfall. And three Londoners are named among the richest architects in the world. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week is Owen Hatherley. Owen is an architecture writer, journalist and author of Red Metropolis, a polemical history of municipal socialism in London. Welcome to the show. I'm very glad to be here. Westminster Council has approved Pill, Brow and Partners' controversial plans, uh, described by critics as short-sighted and wasteful, to demolish Marks and Spencer's superstore on Oxford Street in central London. As reported by the AJ, councillors on the borough's planning committee voted to support the redevelopment, which will see a 10-storey mixed-use building replace M&S's largest store. Uh, it's currently comprised of three buildings at 456 to 472 Oxford Street. Um, the decision came despite a range of voices calling for the existing building complex to be preserved in particular the original 1930s orchard house due to its cultural heritage and the embodied carbon associated with demolition and rebuild uh, the new building would see MS spread over just two and a half floors rather than the five currently used with office space taking up the upper stories um, the approval follows both a listing attempt and an outpouring of support for keeping the structures uh, on twitter uh, from groups such as create streets and save britain's heritage uh, who spoke out, but also regular London guest and 20th Century Society president Catherine Slesser, who labelled the replacement another anodyne hulk. Um, in another blow to heritage campaigners, uh, Lambeth Council has elsewhere voted unanimously in favour of proposals to redevelop part of the iconic Cressingham Gardens estate designed by the legendary architect Ted Hollenby in Tolls Hill. Uh, the proposal designed by Conran and Partners to demolish and redevelop 12 homes on Roper's Walk was unanimously approved uh, despite ep- opposition from both the 20th Century Society, Save Britain's Heritage uh, and then also an array of local groups. Now, in contrast to these two, in a separate heritage battle, the fate of South Kensington Tube Station has apparently been secured following the rejection of a proposed redesign by Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners. Again, this has been reported by the AJ. Um, The contentious designs featured shops, offices and homes around the Grade 2 listed station uh, have been turned down by Kensington and Chelsea's planning committee, despite planning officers recommending its approval. 
the project, which is a joint venture between Native Land and Transport for London, attracted 2,197 objections, including from the local MP Felicity Buchan and five councillors. Those proposals have been amended three times and put through six rounds of consultations since RSHP was appointed in 2018. So, Owen, heritage battles are somewhat inevitable in a major historic city like London with a very buoyant property market. Um, but is the move to demolish the MS on Oxford Street uh, a step too far? Is it also a step too far to demolish Roper's Walk at Cressingham Gardens? And is there something about these latest heritage battles which seem perhaps even more heated, perhaps with a galvanising of criticism online around the issue of embodied carbon in a way which we haven't seen before? One of the things that I found really funny about the way that people were were defending these the south ken one and the um the oxford street one was as if the existing sites weren't dense enough um both of the existing buildings on those sites that were proposed to be replaced are massive you know they're, they're a high density department store and then high density you know sort of uh if i remember rightly mansion block stuff on the on, on the south ken site um I've got some sympathy with people like the sort of centre for cities when they talk about the need for densification in, I don't know, Orpington or something. You know, there's a lot of London when you're out into zones five and six, which use the space really poorly. Um, Oxford Street is not one of them. Um, as an architectural critic and as someone that likes architecture, I don't give a toss about either building. I don't think either is particularly great. Um, they are, I suppose, the best thing that can be said about them is they're sort of generic examples of that, of a particular type. You know, they, they, they do what they do fairly inoffensively. And it would be wasteful to demolish them. And that actually is a new thing in conservation, I think, as you kind of, um, as you point out, it's a simple argument against sort of demolishing any kind of large scale thing because of the amount of energy that will be wasted in the process. And I'm sort of broadly sympathetic to that, but only up to a point. The Oxford Street proposal sort of just no interest whatsoever, and there's nothing about the new building that's worth talking about. The, um, I mean, it's also not even that bad. It's replacing a mediocre building with a mediocre building. Um, the um, the South Ken one is, in the, is just the thing with kind of Roger Sturck Harbour in general, which, you know, as a kind of long-running uh, defender of the work of Richard Rogers and his colleagues, it sort of pains me a little bit. You know, I, 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 I'm firmly of the view that, like, the best buildings of all time are the Centre Pompidou and Lloyd's building. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't think that any, I don't think it gets better anywhere. Um, you know, they're, they're like craft work for me. They're just like the epitome. Um, so just seeing them do this, like, dull dry, miserable stuff is sad. Um, um, I would completely separate both of those from Cressingham Gardens, which I am just amazed that Lambeth are still at this. Amazed. You know, I remember at the start, like, they still had some sort of justification of like, ah, well, you know, it's a failing estate, we have to get rid of it, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, actually, it's become clear again and again and again that it's a phenomenally popular estate with its residents. They want it protected. And Lambeth Council are basically like, sorry, our balance sheet says that we need to sell this amount of land. Um, and, you know, you're in the way. Um, I think it's absolutely indefensible. I, I, you know, long for a 
you know, a, a, a change in Lambeth Council, which used to be one of the most imaginative and creative London councils, and now just seems to be absolutely in control of, of, of just the worst kind of zombie blairism. And I, I, I think it's dreadful. Like, you should not be in a position. And, you know, in the, in the height of New Labour, they would not, simply because they're interested in publicity, would not have shown themselves in a position to basically be going to, into an area where people love their homes and going, like, we think your homes are shit and we're going to demolish them. Don't do that. doesn't look good. Stretching from Covent Garden to Highgate, home to West End attractions, globally renowned universities and the famous Camden Lock Market, the borough of Camden has now been crowned as the entrepreneurial capital of London. Dubbed the new Palo Alto by one tech investor, researched by leading SME insurer Superscript, uh, reported by the Evening Standard, has revealed that 1,055 new small businesses were established in the borough between 2020 and 2021. Uh, That is more per capita than the rest of London. London. Uh, the surge in new registrations comes in stark contrast to the trends seen throughout the rest of the country, where during the pandemic, the number of small businesses actually fell by 369,000. Uh, coming a close second to Camden, uh, Camden itself saw a 3.3% increase in small businesses, uh, was Hackney, um, which just 10 years ago received an enormous amount of media attention around the idea that Old Street had become the UK's Silicon Roundabout. Uh, Hackney witnessed just shy of a thousand new firms established in the past year uh, the same research found uh, followed by barnet in third place more than 11 percent of vacancies in the northwest london borough of camden are for tech roles uh, government employment figures show uh, some notable titans uh, in the area include tech giant google in king's cross the convenience fashion store asos and the newly listed car company kazoo um Owen, perhaps you could tell our listeners about uh, a little bit about the history of Camden and also its identity uh, today. I must say the idea of Camden as Palo Alto is hilarious. Like, you know, it's basically saying, like, Camden is the new Basingstoke. For me, the interesting thing in Camden is not really its connection with punk or youth culture, which, to be honest, was always more interesting in other places. Um, You know, like Soho, uh, Nottingham Elaborate Grove, Brixton... That's where you need to look for the interesting pop culture stuff. Camden is where you look for Britpop. And in many ways, probably the, 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 this is part of why it's been able to do that. It's not faced the kind of uh, incredibly sort of unstable sort of property and hipsterism boom that somewhere like Hackney has. It's, you know, a little bit of a sort of tourist backwater nowadays. So that means that actually, you know, if you are a sort of large company that's not wanting to spend as much as they would spend going to to, to, to Hackney. Um, So the interesting thing about Camden's history for for me is its site as the beginning or one of the beginnings along with Islington of London's gentrification. And that first phase of it, um, Alan Bennett, who obviously still lives there, writes about this quite a lot, about the appearance at the end of the 60s, the start of the 70s, of the, the knockers through. Um, and actually, like, it's in the 70s, one of the first places where, like, the middle classes sort of return to the city in Camden and in Islington. Um, and architects, too, like... Um, you know, some of the enormously rich architects that we're going to talk about presently, um, you know, start off doing muse houses in places like Murray Muse and Camden Muse, often for themselves. 
Um, and along with that, you have, you know, the kind of wonderful uh, tradition of Camden housing under Sidney Cook. And I, I very much think this is my kind of hunch with a lot of why that Camden architecture is so good, contrasting with a lot of other London boroughs at that time, is because at each point, the architects were thinking about whether or not they themselves would live in it. Because they might. Um, you know, Neve Brown's um, council housing was modelled on the small housing cooperative he built for himself and his mates. Um, you know, it's the ultimate example that, that, that sort of dispels this sort of idea of like, oh, well, they would never have lived in it. They would have lived in a nice Georgian house. All of that kind of trend is really kind of, um, and it's a, a banity, uh, you know, the kind of sense of a lot of that housing that it was made, which is really unusual for the time or, or since, made by people that lived in cities and liked cities. Is, is is really thrilling and exciting and I think um, probably the most interesting thing about Camden in many ways. What's really interesting is that historically the financial and business heart of the UK was very much put forward as being the square mile uh, and then along came Canary Wharf as a rival and more recently the Silicon Roundabout in Old Street um, and likewise city governance uh, the politics it was once at County Hall uh, then it moved down river to Tower Bridge and imminently it's about to leap even further east uh, to the Royal Docks. Um, what has London's relationship been historically to these centres of economic and political power and where do you think this relationship might go next considering centre of gravity really does seem to be constantly moving and with working from home on the rise maybe even capable of leaving the capital altogether? The centre of British finance capitalism is the southeast. Seeing it as London is slightly distortive. It's the southeast. Um, so, you know, it, it's the, the city of London, the square mile, has always been the heart of it. But it's an entire thing which takes in the home counties, Hampshire, Wiltshire, you know, it goes all the way as far as far west as Swindon, you know, it, 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 it goes all the way as far north as Norfolk. It's an entire kind of entity which, um, you know, is where where the financial heart has has always been. So although the city itself and, the you know, the Bank of England at the heart of it has always had, you know, it's always been the hub of that system, the centres of that system have always been scattered around. Um, so in a way, it's not that weird that it, that it kind of hops around and, you know, that the sort of new centres of it are, 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 are constantly open. And, and what, just what about City Hall jumping further down east? Do you read anything into that? I, I read into that, like the financial crisis that every public institution is currently in. Um, and they don't own City Hall, which, by the way, is utterly scandalous. Like, the, their purpose-built headquarters are leased from... I believe the Qatari royal family, uh, as part of more London. It's literally a part of more London and rented. It's rented. You know, there's no better metaphor, I think, for, um, you know, the kind of the kind of public London, the residential London, the working class London, than the fact that its government is rented. Even the government of London is renting. Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Uh, Open City is a charity best known for the Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. Uh, the show, along with the festival and our schools programme, are free uh, because we believe 
everyone should have the access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month. Um, if this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate uh, and help keep these conversations accessible, inclusive and honest. Uh, last week, five amazing people signed up. They are Rupesh Vasani, Noel Wright, Joe Elno, uh, Annabelle Agas and Lucy Sigmund. Thank you. Uh, if you're not in a position to donate, then keep supporting us by listening and sharing among your friends and colleagues. Last week, it was announced that the eastern leg of HS2 is to be scrapped with neither the full high-speed east-west line between Manchester to Leeds nor the Birmingham to Leeds line set to be built. The revelations were contained in the government's long-awaited integrated rail plan and were covered extensively across the national media with a particular focus on the impact it would have in areas of the North East and Midlands. Announcing the government's new £96 billion rail plan, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps said it would deliver faster rail connections that would be cheaper and in some cases delivered a decade earlier than building HS2 as it was originally intended. Despite promises to level up parts of the country by investing in northern powerhouse rail, the government's new plans will not deliver a high-speed trans-Pennine route between Manchester and Leeds, including only upgrades to existing lines. In addition, the eastern leg linking Birmingham to Leeds is also being dumped altogether, leading some to accuse the government of abandoning the north. The transport crisis within the capital itself has meanwhile grabbed the headlines again, with Mayor Sadiq Khan warning that huge cuts are on the table for the tube, buses and cycling infrastructure. According to the Evening Standard, London could face a million fewer public transport journeys a day and Khan warns more than 100 bus routes are facing the chop, with 200 more on reduced frequencies. These are changes which could start as early as next month. Worn-out tube trains will not be replaced until the 2040s, and all new cycle and pedestrian road safety schemes could be ditched as TfL faces a staggering £1.3 billion hole in its budget. It's being said by City Hall that in the absence of concrete, long-term commitment from the government, London's public transport will have to enter a period of managed decline, in which only safety-critical repairs are carried out. So, Owen, what's this all about? HS2 has, for some, been a hugely divisive project, with opponents quoting astronomical costs, environmental degradation and questionable benefits, while supporters have stressed the importance of boosting capacity on heavily oversubscribed routes and providing infrastructure to drive northern economies. Firstly, why has the government suddenly made this U-turn when Boris Johnson, as recently as last month, was still promising to build Northern Powerhouse Rail as part of his levelling up agenda? And also, why does so much of the media coverage focus on the North and Midlands losing out when HS2's part scrapping will also have a big impact on London, which is little being discussed? I'm not actually that bothered about the focus on the North because I, um, you know, I, I, I'm fairly sort of partisan about London and I... Um, I, I find a lot of it not to be useful, but there is a simple fact, a simple fact that the entire public transport system in Britain, particularly in England and Wales, is centred on London. Um, the simple fact that London's public transport is, it can often feel centuries ahead of the rest of the country. It's the only city in Britain which has a European standard public transport system, the only one. I think where the dog is buried is the, the Treasury and... 
a sort of persistent thing in Britain, which goes back a very long way, like <laughs> talking like right back to the sort of 19th century, of the Treasury being extraordinarily unwilling to do anything, <laughs> to fund things. You know, they, they, they generally regard um, large public projects as, partic particularly public projects, as not really worth their while. You know, there's a, and, and, and that they've sort of successfully sort of hoodwinked sort of generations of prime ministers, really, some of whom, like Gordon Brown, you would think would know better, into this kind of um, very sort of austere attitude towards public transport projects in particular, which is very much contrasting with most of Britain's neighbours, you know. Um, the, the kind of ultimate point in this point really cannot be stressed enough with TfL and TfL's cash crisis is owed to sort of uh, George Osborne, who, when he was Chancellor, um, abolished the government grant to Transport for London. And that is absolutely crucial. You know, that, that, that meant that TfL had to become the only mass urban rapid transport system in Europe, I think possibly in the, in, in, in the rich world more generally, that had to fund itself from its own revenues and its own advertising. Um, and as always, because London news is not properly covered, this passed completely beneath the radar. And so the government has been able to point to TfL's kind of cash shortfalls, which have been happening for a good few years, and go, oh, look, this is because they elected this Labour mayor. Um, and I've, my sympathies for Sadiq Khan are minimal, but this is one thing that is absolutely in no way his fault. And the the um, the particular kind of, um, you know, the, the, the notion, I think, because I don't think George Osborne necessarily wanted the entire public transport system of London to collapse, necessarily. But there was this idea that because it was constantly expanding, and London was constantly expanding, and money kept sloshing into London, that it could pay for itself. And that all hinged absolutely on, on Crossrail, on Crossrail and kind of continued growth. And HS2 is also part of strategy and we can argue about whether or not it was right or wrong but this was the strategy that London due to crossrail would essentially extend as far west as Reading as far east as you know places like Dartford and you know essentially would sort of add another million or two to it to, to its population who would be regularly commuting on TfL trains um, and that would then raise revenue and on top of that you would have um, HS2 would essentially bring the West Midlands into the London commuter zone. Um, I think that's the worst possible justification for HS2, which I actually do support, albeit quite reluctantly. Um, but the, that, that, that was the idea behind it. So you created this sort of mega London where enough money would be sloshing around to keep this thing going. And obviously that's been hit very hard. It's been hit very hard by the pandemic. Um, it was already, you know, looking a little shaky um, in that the kind of the, the sort of bubble that's being inflated is obviously going to burst at some point. Obviously, due to various problems with the kind of elaborate and Byzantine systems of subcontracting we use in this country, Crossrail is now several years late. So this thing that was going to save TfL, that was going to offer it this lifeline, um, doesn't exist. I mean, it does exist. If you go, you know, go to like Farringdon Station or Abbey Wood Station, you can see it. But, you know, obviously you can't actually get on the trains. So 
it's created this kind of perfect storm, really. And the only solution to it is for the government to give TfL a grant again. And the kind of particular kind of pork barrel um, politics of the moment and the kind of regional populism of the moment make that extraordinarily unlikely. So I think things are likely to get worse before they get better. And just just quickly on that HS2 in London, the idea that it would have connected to Crossrail at Old Oak Common and then connected to a whole network going up to Manchester, Leeds, beyond, potentially. Uh, But then also in its original incarnation was supposed to seamlessly link into High Speed One uh, so that international services could run on this network. Um, Is is London missing out on what, what could have been a really great bit of infrastructure? No, no. Bradford is missing out on what could be a really great bit of infrastructure. Let, let's say this kind of the sort of George Osborne vision, as I've sort of out, outlined it, of kind of London, you know, a, a London from Birmingham to Southend, let's say, wouldn't have benefited Londoners. You know, it would have continued the system where you know where, where housing becomes more unaffordable, where jobs are more precarious, which you know no one in London really benefits from. London, I don't think the majority of Londoners benefit from it being this kind of gigantic Moloch at the centre of the country. I don't think, you know, the, the, the London boroughs that are the highest in child poverty in the country benefit from, you know, the fact that, like, someone that works in financial services who lives in Solihull can, can commute more easily to Canary Wharf. Like, you know. Now, the government says it spent almost £5 billion on three TfL pandemic bailouts and it's refusing to commit any more. Um, why is it that this London's public transport is not seen as something worth investing in? I mean, this is literally for want of 1.3 billion when nearly 100 billion pounds is being spent on, uh, you know, the so-called levelling up of places in the north through part building HS2. Well, it doesn't need to be either or. And this is how they get you. <laughs> this is how they always win um, is by kind of setting one up against the other. There's, there's, there's not a question of scarcity here. Um, the cost of borrowing is uh, is at a historic low. Um, any kind of uh, you know of, of green new deal will need a lot of infrastructure spending, which is actually remarkably easy to do. Your, your actual Joe Biden, you know, someone I've always considered a deeply conservative figure, um, is absolutely flooding the U.S. economy and U.S. infrastructure with public money, and we're basically sitting here, you know, arguing about whether or not. We should have like you know a, a high-speed railway like fifty years after France did and sixty years after Japan did, um, or whether or not we should still have like the one seven one bus crossing the river or not. Like you know, it's this is a it's a completely false choice. We should obviously have both of these things, and you know the 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 the, the kind of opposition of those is a is, is a false one which we should absolutely resist because I do think. And here I, you know, uh, I sort of dissent a little bit from other sort of um, defenders of London. And that London transport is just really, really good. It has been really, really good for a very, very long time. It is so far in advance of anywhere else. The ability to get anywhere else from London is so in advance of anywhere else. And other parts of urban Britain, Bradford being such a perfect example, because Bradford is a big city. Um, and you can't really, you know, get an intercity train in Bradford after about 7pm. Like, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and the question of, of intercity travel on this, on an HS2, and the, and the point here about the particular cuts that have been made, actually, 
show the survival of the George Osborne idea of expanding the London commuter zone. Because the thing with HS2 is there's a question of like, what is it? Is it another thing which is centrifugal from London and leads to um, other places to make it easier for them to commute to London? Or is it an actual new network which makes it easier to go from Leeds to Edinburgh, from Manchester to Glasgow, from Birmingham to Manchester? You know, that, that, that project is one that I, I completely support, and that's the one that's actually being dismantled. That's the one which these cuts remove. Finally, three London architects have been named among the top 10 richest members of the profession. It's a story that's been covered by a website called The Richest. Um, at the top of the list is Norman Foster, also known as Baron Foster of Thamesbank. Uh, he's reported to be worth $240 million. That's nearly £180 million. Uh, Foster started his practice back in 1967. Uh, it's since become known for towering steel and glass buildings, including the famed HSC, HSBC building, uh, the soon to be vacated City Hall, the Gherkin, uh, and the Great Court British Museum redevelopment. He also set up a foundation in Madrid in 2017 to, quote, promote interdisciplinary thinking and research to help new generations of architects, designers and urbanists anticipate the future. Uh, Zaha Hadid, meanwhile, uh, also appears on the top 10 list, uh, despite passing away suddenly in 2016. According to the website, Hadid had a net worth of $95 million, or, or £71 million. Pounds. Um, crowned the Queen of the Curve by The Guardian, Hadid made her mark across the globe with projects including the sweeping Aquatic Centre at the London 2012 Olympics, the flowing Haydar Aliyev Centre in Baku, Azerbaijan, and the Angular Broad Art Museum in Michigan. Uh, the Zaha Hadid Foundation has a remit to create a museum and exhibition space in London dedicated to her life's work, and to also support learning programmes focusing on getting young women into architecture. Um, the third London architect on the list is David Ajay, who's worth an estimated $10 million, that's roughly £7.5 million, making him the 10th richest architect in the world, according to the website. Ajay, he's a Ghanaian British architect, was awarded a knighthood by the Queen in 2017. His practice, Ajay Associates, is responsible for projects around the globe, including the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and a major rethink of Liverpool's maritime waterfront. Um, so, Owen, what does it mean for London that some of its architects are among the richest uh, architects in the world. Uh, a lot of our built environment, it was shaped by architects who in the past valued public service over personal gain. Uh, what does it mean for London now that some of its most influential architects are also people who've made a lot of money out of the present economic system, uh, the same system which itself has wrought some glaring inequalities with real built environment consequences uh, for our city? The interesting thing about list of three from, I suppose, uh, an ad hominem perspective is the fact that two of them were born into wealth and one of them wasn't. Um, you know, the, the, the lots of Zaha Hadid's career was made possible by the fact that she had large inherited wealth from her, 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 her father being an industrialist in Iraq. You know, that there was always lots of money that meant that she could basically, you know, build two buildings for the first, like, 15 years of her career. Um, and you know that's not that, that's not a dig. It's just a, a, a fact. I think the the paintings that she did at that point were actually more interesting than many of the actual buildings when she started actually building. So, I think she spent her time better, and as a rule, 
Um, you know, Adche similarly, you know, is the son of a diplomat, you know, moved all over the world, had quite a lot of money, was quite comfortable. So whereas obviously Foster, as he always points out, is from a working class background in Stockport. So there's a sort of, you know, two of them are old money, one of them is 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 new. But I think the fact that the three British architects, as you say, are, are in that list is in a way to do with the way that Britain has sort of from the 70s onwards punched above its weight in international architecture. And that, you know, stems ultimately from the AA and the AA's kind of decision to um, basically become a sort of international finish, finishing school for the, you know, for, 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 for world architects. Um, and one can debate whether or not this is a good or a bad thing, but that's what it became. And that made London you know, a really, really important centre. Um, some of those people, Zaha Hadid certainly used to, would talk about how they'd love to be working for local authorities and, you know, but they're not. And, um, you know, she was probably wealthy enough to just, you know, do a housing estate pro bono, but there were, you know, when she died, there were none being built. <laughs> so, you know, the nearest she ever got to public project are those, you know, are, are actually those in Britain as, as, as sort of strange things like Maggie centres, you know, which are, are a whole other thing to talk about. Um, you know, the Aquatic Centre and, and, and the City Academy run by a hedge fund manager in Brixton. So I think with that, you're basically building a business rather than an architecture firm. And that creates a contradiction between the signature, which your kind of big architect is expected to have, and the fact that what's, that what's actually doing it is a huge and faceless business. You know, no one expected like, expects like a Skidmore Owings and Merrill building or a Cone Peterson Fox building to be, you know, to express the personality of its architect. Um, but the kind of, you know, the, 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 the kind of problem that they've made for themselves, these sorts of architects, is that they do. So, you know, an international business of dozens and dozens of people working for a turnover of several million, you know, has to look like it was personally drawn on a napkin by Zaha, even though she's been dead for several years. Um, and, you know, that's no way to run a newspaper. Owen, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Lundown again, a true friend of the show, editor of The Alternative Guide to London Boroughs, published by Open City and also Red Metropolis. Uh, where should listeners go uh, to keep up to speed on your writing, your speaking, all the amazing things you're doing? I mean, they can't at the moment because I've deleted my Twitter account. Um, although that's temporary. I've deleted it because I'm working on a book. Um, when I finish that book, it will be back on Twitter at Owen Hathaway. And I'm also on Instagram posting very seldom, but I am actually on there as Owen Thomas Hathaway. And I think that's about it, really. Oh, and I've got Goodreads. Goodreads is really fun. I've been getting really into Goodreads. So search me on Goodreads and you'll find out what I'm reading. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being on the show again and hope to feature you on London soon in the future. You've been listening to The London show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon, 
or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Thank you.